0: Thanks for joining us this morning. We are so glad that you're with us. You know, this is the wrap-up to our series, Strapped, where we've been looking at just the reality of what the average American is going through these days, especially over the last couple of years, the financial strain that's been on everyone. We have looked at debt. We have looked at greed. Today, we're going to be looking at generosity, which we began last week, really, as the antidote to greed. Before we get started, would you just bow your heads for a moment and pray with me? Father, I am so incredibly grateful that you have given us this time to, to set aside, to, to reconnect with your word and your truth, especially in such uncertain financial times. And you have reminded us again and again, God, why your name is called Faithful. And I pray that today, as we work through this message, as we look at your word, that we would just come away convinced, God, that what you say is real and right and true, that your promises can be depended on, and that, Lord, you will always bless us when we choose your pathway. It is truly the pathway to freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. She lived to be 100 years old, and her name was Blanche Burns, and she just happened to be my English teacher in the eighth grade. Of course, I never knew her as Blanche. She was always Mrs. Burns to me. I can honestly say that of all the teachers I've ever had in public school, college, even graduate school, no other teacher has had a more profound effect on my life than Mrs. Burns because she instilled in me a love for reading. I can't even explain how she did it, but she is the teacher who made me want to read and encouraged me as I read. In fact, the year I had Mrs. Burns for a teacher, I read nearly 70 books in that one year alone. This one habit alone has done more to prepare me for leadership than any other skill I've acquired over the years. I am the leader I am today because of Mrs. Burns. To me, Mrs. Burns is a powerful reminder of just how influential and important public school teachers are. A great teacher really can make all the difference. Teachers become mentors and models and idols and friends and counselors and even sometimes substitute parents. They leave a more permanent mark on society than practically any other profession you can name. But sadly, in this country, we often take them for granted, which is reflected in how poorly they're paid, especially when compared to other professions. So get this, uh, electricians, mechanics, plumbers get paid anywhere from $70 to $120 an hour. They're skilled professionals and deserve every penny that they're paid. I'm not really debating that. But the average teacher in our country who possesses possesses an advanced college degree typically makes around $56,000 a year. By the way, the average salary for a bachelor's degree in America is $83,000 a year. But once you add up all the other additional hours in the school day, the additional hours spent on taking home papers and grading them and preparing lessons, then add in all the other after-school activities that they're required to attend, then divide all of those hours into their salaries, most teachers are making around $10 an hour. They make about the same or less than what we pay our babysitters. And that's not right. Teachers help to determine where society's heading. They shape our future. Psychologist Julia Siegel talks about the struggles many kids are going through today and how oftentimes they feel like no one listens or even cares about them. That's why we need an adult, someone who's not their parent, who can hear what they're saying and give helpful advice. When Dr. Siegel talks about who those adults are that speak into our kids' lives, she said this, one factor turns out to be the presence in their lives of a charismatic adult, a person from whom they gather strength. And in surprising number of cases, that person turns out to be a teacher. Teachers really do make an incredible difference, but not just for kids who are struggling. You know, there was this major study that was conducted by The economists at Harvard and Columbia University that tracked 2.5 million students over 20 years time from a large urban school district from the fourth grade all the way to adulthood. It was the largest or at least one of the largest studies of its kind ever conducted. Here's what they found. A good teacher not only improves the child's test scores in the classroom, but also enhances his or her chances to attend college, earn more money, and avoid teen pregnancy. Now, there are some countries in our world, like Switzerland, the Netherlands, Germany, and Belgium, who understand the importance of teachers and pay their teachers accordingly. In fact, if you look at the average salary someone makes in those countries, teachers are paid considerably more. But then there are countries like our own who pay teachers at lower levels than average salaries. Bottom line, how we pay teachers is a direct reflection of our values. Because what we value most, we pay well, and what we value least, we pay poorly. So if you wanna know what Americans truly value, take a look at professional sports and CEOs. They're among the top wage earners in our country. Teachers are nearer to the bottom of the scale. In fact, of all the degreed professionals in America, do you know what two professional professions are lowest paid? They are, in this order, pastors and teachers, with pastors falling below teachers. Of course, teachers and pastors already know this, so obviously we don't enter into this profession for the money. We do it because we believe that what we're doing really matters. So it may be that other people don't value our professions, but God knows the difference between pastors and teachers and the difference that they make. So with all of that percolating in our minds, I'd like to begin with something Jesus said. I call this first point, the undeniable link between our values and our valuables. Jesus said it like this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what Jesus said here is so radical and true. Your money and your heart are inextricably bound together. Where one goes, the other is sure to follow. Our heart and our money live in a symbiotic relationship with one another. So if you truly value something, you resource it. And if you don't, you won't. That's what Jesus is saying. Our values and our valuables go through life hand in hand. Heart and treasure are linked. Which means no matter what we may say we love, it's not our words. It's our money that declares what we truly love. So if you want to know what I truly love, then all you need to do is take a look at my checkbook register and my credit card statements. It's all there in black and white. How I spend my money tells you in no uncertain terms what's truly most valuable to me. Now consider this. God wants your heart, right? I mean, make no mistake about it. That's what he wants. There's nothing more important than the heart. But to get to the heart, he's got to get control of where the money goes. Because of what Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He wants to get your treasure moving in his direction, because then and only then will God truly have your heart. So the question is, who or what has your heart? In what direction do your resources flow? This is a really important question to God, which also makes this message intricately tied to last week's message on greed. Remember how greed is focused inward and on ourselves— As I told you last week, the only way to cure greed is with its opposite virtue. Generosity is the opposite of greed. While greed focuses our life inward and on ourselves, generosity focuses us outward and on others. What I want you to understand is this. Hide up in the very definition of generosity is the well-being of other people. Patricia Herzog wrote the book American Generosity, Who Gives and Why, and she offered us this definition of generosity. She said... Generosity is giving good things to others freely and abundantly. Generous behaviors are intended to enhance the well-being of others. So by definition, being generous moves us outward, away from the self and toward other people. That's what makes generosity the true path to freedom. It's the virtue that sets us free from the prison of thinking only of ourself and our own interests. So what I'd like to do today is show you in both Testaments, Old and New, When God talks about giving, about being generous, I want you to know it's not program-oriented, it's not building-oriented, it's people-oriented. In particular, our giving is intended to value those who are doing the work of God. So let's talk about the valuing of God's workers. Where I want to begin is with the first mention of tithing in the Bible. If you're not aware of this, let me read it to you. After Abram returned from defeating Ketelomer and that kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This verse clearly shows us a couple of things. First, it establishes the tithe is something that Predates the law. Now, you've probably heard people say this because I have many times. Tithing's Old Testament law. We're under grace, not law, so we don't have to tithe. Well, that's not exactly true. Yes, eventually tithing was codified into the law, but the practice itself originated long before the law. It was first practiced by Abraham, the one the New Testament calls the father of the faithful. Abraham doesn't give Melchizedek a tithe because he has to, he doesn't do it out of a sense of moral obligation to a law. He does this naturally and spontaneously. He does this to honor the priest. The other thing important to notice about this verse is the very first gift of 10% is clearly tied to care for God's workers. Melchizedek is a priest of God. The need being addressed here is not the temple. It's not the ministry. It's not even care for the poor, which we all agree are very important. The primary concern that motivates Abraham's giving is care for the one who does the work of God. By the way, Jacob is also mentioned in Genesis 28 as continuing the practice of tithing. Jacob's example is also pre-law. So when someone says tithing is Old Testament law, that's not really an accurate statement since tithing began hundreds of years before the law, more than 400 years before the law. Well, then we have the establishment of the tithe in the law. So during the time of Moses, God appointed a special class of workers who were to lead Israel in the things of God. They were the priesthood. God instituted a tithe, that is 10% of an individual's income, to support the priest and other workers in the house of God. Each Israelite was commanded to give 10% of their income in grain and animals or cash to support the priestly families. By the way, there are two other tithes that are mentioned in the Old Testament. The festival tithe, which funded the seven national feasts, and the poor tithe, which was only collected every three years, which helped to provide for the poor and vulnerable in the community. But the tithe I'm talking about today was specifically the Levite tithe, or the tithe for God's workers. So when God established this tithe, he said this, To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance, in return for their service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. Or how about this? The Levitical priest, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the food offerings presented to Yahweh, for that is their inheritance. They shall shall have no inheritance among their fellow Israelites. Yahweh is their inheritance, as he promised them. So these verses are really clear. All the Israelites tithe to support the Levites. The question is why? Because God said they have no inheritance in the land, which means they have no other way to provide for themselves except the people of God. Now, if you know your Old Testament at all, you know that Levi is the only tribe who didn't receive an inheritance of property in the promised land. They were given no portion. In fact, in Psalm 73, Asaph says the Lord is his portion, and that means quite literally God is his portion. He has no land to call his portion. Or like the verse we just read said, Yahweh is their inheritance. So why was the tribe of Levi singled out in this way? Well, God chose them to represent him because they were the only ones who remained loyal to him at a time when all the rest of the tribes fell away. You probably remember this story. It's the story of the golden calf. After Moses went to Mount Sinai to receive the law, it took longer than what was expected. The people grew impatient, and they decided on their own to build an idol of gold, a golden calf, and proclaim it as their God. When Moses returned, he couldn't believe what he saw. So here's what happened. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and he said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. That's Exodus 32. So the story is clear. It was only the Levites who took a stand for God alongside of Moses. A little later, Moses would say, then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today. For you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. So get this, in gratitude for their loyalty, God decided that the Levites would be his special representatives. They had proven their faithfulness. So their inheritance would be different from all the other tribes, which means when the promised land was divided up by Joshua, the Levites weren't given a big parcel of land like everyone else received. Instead, all the other tribes had to dedicate a certain portion of their land as home to the Levites. This way, the Levites would be spread out. They'd be dispersed among all the people instead of just being concentrated in one area. This would keep them near to all the other tribes in order to keep the nation near to God. Does that make sense? But because they weren't given a land of their own, they were entitled to some other special benefits. They would be the recipients of all the tithes and offerings to God. So besides money, the tithes would include bread and meat that were given to the Levites to eat. This is what the Bible means in Malachi when it says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Without food to feed their families, the Levites would starve. That's because everyone else had farmlands and herds to provide for themselves, but the Levites did not. Without being able to eat the tithes of meat and grain, they would starve with no meaningful way to provide for their family. Do you see what God is doing? God put the Levites in a position of forced dependency. They are totally dependent on the generosity of God's people. Either the people of God would come through for them, or else they would be forced to abandon God's work in order to go find some other way to provide for their families. And sadly, that did happen from time to time. During the reign of King Hezekiah, the people drifted far from God, began worshiping idols. The temple fell into a state of disrepair. I mean, the roof was leaking, the doors were sagging, the plaster was crumbling. Just a handful of priests were able to serve because the people had stopped tithing. Hezekiah found this absolutely unacceptable. So the scripture says, he ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due the priests and the Levites so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. That's 2 Chronicles 31. This also happened in Nehemiah's day. The people stopped giving. Look at this. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields you see the pattern. When God's people fail to do their part, the work of God suffers because God's workers have to be able to eat and feed their families. Repeatedly, Israel's told in the Old Testament, don't neglect the Levites. They're depending on you. Here's just a couple of other examples of just that. Be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in your land. That's Deuteronomy twelve nineteen. Or how about this? Also, you should not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. That's Deuteronomy 14, 27. So this was God's expectation. He wants his workers taken care of. So now let's move from the Old Testament to the New, and let's hear what Jesus and Paul have to say about the same issue. And that's what this next point is, the teaching of Jesus and Paul. Now, let me just say right up front, I know pastors aren't the same as priests. And I know there's a lot of difference between the Old Testament and the New. But what is strikingly similar is how both Testaments underscore the importance of caring for God's workers. Listen to Jesus speak to this issue. The tw- these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And into whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and abide there until you go away. So in these verses, Jesus is describing this mission of sending out his disciples there to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. The same thing they've been seeing Jesus do, now he wants them to do. But what's really interesting is right after commissioning them to go out and repeat what he's been doing, Jesus says, take along no money, no gold, no silver, no copper. And then he adds, for the worker is worthy of his support. The clear implication is that those who are doing the work of Christ ought to be supported by those to whom they minister. Jesus is saying, you shouldn't have to worry about money as long as you're doing my work. Why? Because you're worthy of the support you receive from the people. In Luke 9, verses 1 through 5, Jesus says the same thing all over again. So once again, Jesus puts God's worker in, God's workers in a position of forced dependency without the giving of God's people, God's God's workers suffer, therefore the work of God suffers. We also know that Jesus himself was dependent on others for financial support because Jesus and his disciples had a money box. John 12 and John 13 tell us that. We know this because the Bible tells us that Judas would often steal from it. But the fact that they have a money box tells you that they needed financial support just like any other ministry today. In fact, the Bible explicitly tells us who it was that supported them financially. Luke writes this, Some women were with him. They had been cured from evil spirits and various illnesses. These women were Mary, also known as Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, whose husband Chusa was Herod's administer, Susanna, and many other women. They provided financial support for Jesus and his disciples. Now, this is just amazing. In a time of extreme male patriarchy, when the rights of men ruled supreme and women were treated more like property, the Bible tells us that we owe the ministry of Jesus and his disciples to a group of women. Not one single man is mentioned as having supported Jesus' ministry financially. But these women through their own businesses and through their financial connections supported Jesus and his disciples so that they could do the work of God. Let that sink in. It's because of the good financial stewardship of women that we have three and a half years of recorded ministry by Christ and his disciples. So now let's look at the apostle Paul in the New Testament. Paul is going to build on the teaching of Jesus, and he'll make a direct correlation between the priesthood and the pastor. Look at this teaching from 1 Corinthians 9. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So Paul tells the Corinthians, those who make their living from the gospel are a lot like the priests in the Old Testament. The priests received their food from the tithes and offerings of the people of God. Paul is saying, same deal today. Just like the priests enjoyed the support of God's people, those who preached the gospel should likewise be compensated by God's people. He saw no difference in how priests or pastors were to be paid. Then he adds this, the Lord has commanded. So when Paul says Lord, he's talking about Jesus Christ. And he's very specific here. He says the Lord Commanded. He doesn't say Jesus made a suggestion. He says Jesus commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. The question is, when did Jesus say this? Well, it's in the verse I read to you a few moments ago, when Jesus commanded his disciples to not take money, to not worry about providing for themselves while doing the work of God because the worker is worthy of his support. Paul says, this is the commandment of Christ. You and I are to take care of God's workers. They shouldn't have to worry about providing for themselves financially because the worker is worthy of the support of the people of God. Of course, this is not the only place in the New Testament where it says this. It also says the one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. In other words, this relationship should be reciprocal. The pastor shares the good things from the word of God. The people share out of their material goods with the pastor. Or how about this in Third John? For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Or how about this? The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages." So the Bible says elders, which is another term for pastors, they they should be honored in value. In fact, Paul says they're deserving of double honor. By the way, that word honor is where we get the term honorarium. Paul is talking about financial remuneration. So what does Paul mean by double honor? Well, it's a Greek word that means more or greater. What Paul is saying is that elders who work hard at preaching and teaching should be highly respected and well-paid. In other words, The church should never operate a sweatshop. When pastors serve the church well, they should receive an ample wage because they've earned it. Now, let me just pause for a minute and say this. This is not a passive-aggressive sermon. I'm not teaching this because I think I'm treated poorly. I'm grateful for how the church has supported me and the other pastors on staff. I just think it's important to understand God's huge heart for His workers and the obligation of the people of God to provide for them. This is the primary reason for the tithe, and it's the primary reason for giving that both Jesus and Paul underscored. This is true not just for our church. It's true for all churches. It doesn't just apply to me, but to every pastor we have on staff. You should also know that there's no pastor here getting rich off the gospel. We all live in average homes. We shop at the same places like Target and Walmart. I've got no private plane. No mansion except in heaven, and I drive a 12-year-old Camry. This brings us back full circle to where we started. Honor and pay are related. What we value and what we do with our valuables, they're intertwined. You know, some time back, Newsweek ran a cover story on American school teachers and our lack of respect for them. This article made one statement that I'll never forget. It said, one reason for the disrespect, of course, is money. If we underpay someone... We obviously don't respect them. So when the church says, let God take care of the pastor, God says, you're the way I take care of the pastor. Now, before we leave this part of the message, let me just remind you of a few of the hazards that pastors face. The Fuller Institute had some pretty shocking statistics about pastors. I think they're quite sobering. Like this, 71% report fatigue and burn, burnout on a daily or weekly basis. 80% of pastors report feelings of wanting to leave the ministry at any given time. 1,700 pastors leave the ministry every month in the U.S. Eight out of 10 pastors will leave their profession for good after just 10 years of service. Half of ministers won't last five years. Only one in 10 ministers will actually retire as a minister these statistics speak for themselves. Working in ministry is one of the most difficult jobs a person will ever have. Obviously, money isn't everything. And though there are a handful of ministers out there who give us all a bad name, most ministers I know are hardworking, but often undervalued. When we give our money, we give our heart. We give our support. We give honor. Now, let's be honest. There's always someone out there who just wants to argue. They'll try to pick apart everything I've said today in a desperate attempt to justify not giving anything to God. Friends, even if you don't believe in tithing or supporting pastors who minister the Word, there's no way you can say the New Testament gives you a license to be selfish. Giving is important because giving affects our heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our hearts follow our treasures. Where and how we spend our money says more about what we truly value than anything that comes from our lips. So how do we do it? Well, let me show you how. This is about giving God's way. Let me first remind us all that our attitude in, about our attitude in giving, then I want to talk to you about God's promise to give her. So first, our attitude in giving. There's probably no passage of scripture that says it better than this. Each man or woman should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There are three things that Paul makes clear. The first is that giving must be done intentionally. He says, you give what you've decided to give. What Paul is doing here is contrasting impulse giving with planned giving. In other words, he's saying, look, when it comes to giving, you need to quit showing up at church and giving if or when you feel like it. It's like God is saying, you know, I want you to go home. And I want you to look at your finances, and I want you to look at your life, and your expenses, and your potential, and really give this some thought. I want you to pray about it. I want you to plan it. Then make a decision and stick with it. So it needs to be intentional. The second quality that Paul reinforces is in terms of how we give is our attitude should be not reluctantly. He says, don't do this reluctantly or or under compulsion. I mean, if you're feeling guilty, then don't give you have my permission. Besides, if you only give out a guilt, it's only going to happen one Sunday anyway. You won't keep doing it. Guilt, reluctance, feeling like you have to, is the absolute worst motivation to do anything. It won't last. You won't keep doing it. So God says, if that's the best reason you can muster to give, then keep your money. Imagine what would happen if I took my wife a gift on our anniversary. I tossed it in her lap and I said, Here, I got you this gift because I know I have to since it's our anniversary. It costs too much. I hope you're happy. Now, what do you think would happen besides me sleeping on the couch that night? Well, I'd be in the doghouse for weeks. Because who wants a gift with an attitude like that? Listen to this. According to George Barna, three out of four Christians say they cringe when the offering plate is passed. That means that 75% of Christians are not giving to God's work with a glad heart. God says, if you do it reluctantly or with a feeling of obligation, just, just keep it because God says, I can't bless it anyway, which leads to the final attitude. We're to give cheerfully. Joy is the key to generosity. Always has been, always will be. People don't start giving when they have more money. They start giving when they have more joy. That's what Paul's saying. God loves a cheerful giver. Because a cheerful giver is someone who looks to God and says, I see you as you are, Father. I see that you're big enough and gracious enough to meet all of my needs. You're not demanding this from me, but you're inviting me to participate in this faith-building adventure. I can't wait to see what happens. Now, true confession here. When Brenda and I were first married more than 40 years ago now, she was a tither and I was not. Even as a poor college student, she consistently gave 10% of everything she made to God. And I stopped her from doing it because I said, we need the money more than the church does. And for the first several years of our marriage, we were not givers because of my closed-off selfish heart. But then I started looking at all of God's promises that He makes about what happens when we give. And I started thinking about Jesus' statement that my heart and my wallet, my heart and my treasures were bound together. Where one went, the other was sure to follow. I wanted God to have my whole heart. So I started tithing. That was more than 35 years ago now. And since that initial decision, I've never looked back. I've come to experience the joy in knowing that God does all things well, and he always keeps his promises. So let me wrap up with this. God's promise to us as givers. The next verse in Corinthians says this, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Quite literally, the Bible says, if you approach giving the way God says, if you will sow generously, consistently, and joyfully, here's what God promises to do. God is able to give you everything you need exactly when you need it and will do so abundantly. He says all things at all times, all that I need. Now, folks, that's financial security. Okay, so here's what I'm going to ask you to consider doing. Sometime this week or this afternoon, when you have some time for prayer, I want you to pull out your wallet or your checkbook, set it on your lap, lay it in front of you, and say to God, this is yours, God. It belongs to you. I'm sorry if I've ever treated it like it's mine. Help me to always honor you with your money. For some folks here, you've never given. You've never given. So your first step is to begin, to get in the game. Whatever level, make a beginning. That's what God is asking you to do. Not under compulsion, this is a totally free deal, but you decide either on a percentage or an amount and you give it every time you pay. Then watch, watch for what God does for you financially. As he blesses you, consider increasing the amount or percentage that you're giving. This will do more to build your faith than practically anything else I know. This puts my money and my heart in alignment. And it may be that some of you, you give. It's it's just not consistent. And God is prompting you to make your giving more regular and systematic, to be intentional, to make it a priority instead of an afterthought. Or it may be that you're a giver, but you do so grudgingly. You need more joy in your life, greater anticipation of what God is going to do, a deeper sense of satisfaction that comes from knowing you get to be a part of what God is doing every time you give. Ask God to fill you with that desire. And it may be that you're giving, but it's been kind of safe for you. It it hasn't stretched you. You easily and consistently tithe, and you've done that for years like I have. But God would be pleased to accomplish even more through you and would pour even greater resources into your life to channel into His kingdom if you'd let Him. I think most of us here know of Letourneau University, since it's a Texas university and there's a campus over in Richardson a Texas institution we know all too well. R.G. Letourneau was a man just like that. This is the founder of the university. R.G. Letourneau designed and manufactured heavy earth-moving equipment. In the early years of his business, Letourneau said he went into a partnership with God. He wrote, because I believe that God wants businessmen as well as preachers to be his servants, I believe that a factory can be dedicated to his service as well as a church. So in 1935, he irrevocably assigned over 90% of the company's profits to the Letourneau Foundation. And the Letourneau Foundation is described as a not-for-profit corporation whose income and capital could be used only for the cause of Christ. Letourneau was a man who was used powerfully by God because his heart and his resources were in alignment with God's kingdom. Where his heart was, his treasure followed, just like Jesus said. So today... We're asking God to realign our heart and our treasure, our words and our behavior, what we say we value with what we truly value. The blessings of God will always elude the takers and the tightwads, but you can count on this. God's blessing will always rest on the givers. Let's pray. Father, I am so incredibly grateful that you are who you are, and you have proven to me time and time again through difficult circumstances, through challenges, through emergencies and hospitalizations, through battles with insurance companies, with unexpected expenses, medical and dental, with accidents and injuries and repairs, all these things that often take me by surprise. God, the one consistency that I have been able to maintain is to keep you first in all of it. Because I know, God, that when I have you first and foremost in my money, and in my heart, that, God, your promises will always be true for me. And you have done that. You have provided for me. You have blessed me. You have taken care of me. There have been plenty of tight times, but I've never had to go without. And, God, after all these years of living for you, I am so incredibly grateful that I still know you're a faithful God. I think about those early days with Brenda when my heart was so shriveled and so turned inward and so selfish, and how I convinced my sweet wife to stop giving. God, you eventually got through to my heart, and you helped me to see that I could never possibly outgive you. And so, Lord, thank you for teaching me that lesson, even when I was stubborn in my mind and and absolutely heels dug in to not do this. God, I have found over and over again, why your name is called Faithful. Lord, I pray today for this realignment for us all, that God, we would come to a place where we would sit down with our our, our wallet, with our checkbook, lay them out before us and remind ourselves, this is not mine, God, it's yours. And I want my heart and I treasure to line up because you said they always will work in tandem. They will live in symbiotic relationship with one another. God we want our what we say and what we do to be in alignment. We want God so much for your kingdom to manifest on this earth. And so I pray God that as we think about what it means to to support God's workers as they do the work of God, that God, this is near and dear to your heart, that you want to make sure that your kingdom advances, and it will not advance without those people that you have especially trusted with stewarding and leading that movement. So God, help us to do that, to make it a priority, to make our heart align with your heart. I thank you, God, for all that you've taught us throughout this series. Now, God, help us to leave this series changed, somehow different, somehow more in tune with you and your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As always, it is so good to have you join us, whether you're joining us Sunday at 10 a.m. or any other day of the week, we are glad that you chose to invest this time to be with us online. And so I'm gonna ask you now, if you would, let us know that you're here, like the message, give us a comment tell us about your prayer request let us know that you're a part of it and share the message it's the highest compliment that you can pay the ministry every time you share it on your social media sites it just raises so that other people might connect with this and be blessed god bless you i hope it's a great week